Welcome, everyone, to episode 87 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and after last week's episode, they got me curious about the standoff at Ruby Ridge. After reading about it, I decided that it would be this week's episode. But first, a little news. Next week is another week off for the podcast, but there's still plenty of older episodes to enjoy, plus all of the Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes. Also, earlier this week... I discovered a list of the top 15 true crime podcasts based in Ohio, and Ohio Unsolved was ranked number 7 on that list. So thank you to everyone for listening and helping me to be a part of the list. Now, let's get into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Ruby Ridge was the site of an 11-day siege in August of 1992 in Boundary County, Idaho, in a cabin occupied by the Weaver family. It began on August 21st when deputies of the United States Marshal Service came to arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appear on federal firearms charges. During a surveillance operation, Officer Art Roderick shot Weaver's dog leading Weaver's son, Sammy, to fire at the team. Sammy was then shot and killed, causing an exchange of fire in which Weaver's friend, Kevin Harris, shot and killed Deputy Marshal William Francis Deegan. Weaver, Harris, and members of the Weaver's immediate family refused to surrender. The hostage rescue team of the FBI became involved as the siege was mounted. In the standoff, FBI sniper Lon Hirochi shot Weaver's wife Vicky while she was holding her baby daughter, the only casualty of the siege itself. The conflict was ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators. Harris surrendered and was arrested on August 30th. Weaver and his three daughters surrendered the next day. Extensive litigation followed Ruby Ridge. Initially, Randy Weaver and Harris were tried on a variety of federal criminal charges, including first-degree murder for the death of Deegan. In the successful defense, Weaver's attorney, Jerry Spence, accused the agencies that were involved of criminal wrongdoing. In particular, the FBI, the USMS, and the ATF, and the United States Attorney's Office for Idaho. Harris and Weaver were acquitted of all the siege-related charges, and Weaver was only found guilty of violating his bail terms 
and of failing to appear for a court hearing, both related to the original federal firearms charges. The Weaver family and Harris both filed civil suits against the federal government in response to the firefight and the siege. In August 1995, the Weavers won a combined out-of-court settlement of $3.1 million. Harris was awarded a $380,000 settlement in September 2000. In 1997, a Boundary County prosecutor indicted Hirochi for the manslaughter of Vicki, but the county's new prosecutor controversially closed the case, judging that he would be unlikely to secure a conviction. The behavior of federal agents during these events drew intense scrutiny. At the end of Weaver's trial, the Department of Justice's Office of Professional Responsibility formed the Ruby Ridge Task Force in an attempt to investigate Spence's charges. Their report raised questions about all of the participating agencies' conduct and policies. Another inquiry was led by the Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information, which held hearings between September 6 and October 19 of 1995. It issued a report in which it called for reforms in federal law enforcement in an attempt to prevent a repeat of the losses of life at Ruby Ridge and to restore the public's confidence. Several documentaries and books were produced on the siege. The law enforcement's response at Ruby Ridge and during the Waco siege roughly six months later were both cited by Timothy McVeigh as his motivation to carry out the Oklahoma City bombing with Terry Nichols. Randy Weaver, a former Iowa factory worker and U.S. Army soldier, moved with his wife and four children to northern Idaho during the 1980s so they could homeschool his children and escape what he and his wife Vicki saw as a corrupted world. In 1978, Vicki, the religious leader of the family, began to have recurrent dreams of living on a mountaintop and believed that the apocalypse was imminent. After the birth of their son Samuel, the Weavers began selling their belongings and visited the Amish to learn how to live without electricity. They bought 20 acres of land on Ruby Ridge in 1983 and they began building a cabin. The property was in Boundary County on a hillside on Ruby Creek opposite Caribou Ridge, northwest of nearby Naples. In 1984, Randy Weaver and his neighbor, Terry Kennison, had a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. Kennison lost the ensuing lawsuit and was ordered to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court costs and damages. Kennison wrote letters to the FBI, the Secret Service, and the county sheriff, in which he alleged that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John Evans. In January 1985, the FBI and the Secret Service launched an investigation into the allegations that Weaver had made threats against Reagan and other government and law enforcement officials. On February 12th, Weaver and his wife were interviewed by two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, and the Boundary County Sheriff and his chief investigator. The Secret Service had been told that Weaver was a member of Aryan Nations, an anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi, white supremacist terrorist organization, and that he had a large weapons cache at his residence. Weaver denied these allegations, and the government filed no charges. 
On three or four occasions, the Weavers had attempted Aryan Nations meetings at Hayden Lake, where there was a compound for government resistors and white supremacists. The investigation noted that Weaver associated with Frank Kumnik, who was known to associate with members of Aryan Nations. Weaver told the investigators that neither he nor Kumnik was a member of Aryan Nations, but he stated that Kumnik was associated with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. On February 28th, Randy and Vicki Weaver filed an affidavit with the county courthouse, alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the Weaver family. On May 6th, the Weavers sent President Reagan a letter, claiming that their enemies may have sent Reagan a threatening letter under a forged signature. No evidence of such a letter surfaced, but in 1992, the prosecutors cited the 1985 letter as an overt act of the Weaver family conspiracy against the federal government. The ATF first became aware of the Weaver family in July 1986 when he was introduced to a confidential ATF informant at a meeting at the World Aryan Congress. The informant portrayed himself as a weapons dealer working with motorcycle gangs. Weaver had been invited to the meeting by Kumnik, the original target of the ATF investigation. It was Weaver's first time at this Congress. Over the next three years, Weaver and the informant met several times. In July 1989, Weaver invited the informant to his home to discuss forming a group to fight the Zionist organized government, referring to the U.S. government. In October 1989, the ATF claimed that Weaver sold the informant two sawed-off shotguns, with the overall length of the guns shorter than the limit set by federal law. In November of 89, Weaver accused the ATF informant of being a spy for the police. Weaver later wrote that he had been warned by Rico V, the informant's handler. Herb Byerly ordered him to have no further contact with Weaver. Eventually, FBI informant Rico Valentino outed the ATF informant to Aryan Nation security. In June 1990, Byerly attempted to use the sawed-off shotgun charge as leverage to get Weaver to act as an informant for his investigation into Aryan Nations. Weaver refused to become a snitch, and the ATF filed the gun charges in June of 1990. The ATF alleged that Weaver was a bank robber with criminal convictions. Those claims were false. At the time, Weaver had no criminal record. The 1995 Senate investigations found Weaver was not a suspect in any bank robberies. A federal grand jury indicted Weaver in December of 1990 for making and possessing, but not for selling, illegal weapons in October of 1989. The ATF concluded that it would be too dangerous for agents to arrest Weaver at his property. In January of 91, ATF agents posed as broken-down motorists and arrested Weaver when he and Vicky stopped to assist. Weaver was told of the charges against him released on bail and told that his trial would begin on February 19th. On January 22nd, the judge in the case appointed attorney Everett Hoffmeister as Weaver's legal representative. The same day, Weaver called probation officer Carl Richens and told him that he had been instructed to contact Richens on that date. 
Richens did not have the case file at the time, so he asked Weaver to leave his contact information and said that he would contact him when he received the paperwork. According to Richens, Weaver did not give him a telephone number. Hoffmeister then sent Weaver letters on January 19th, January 31st, and February 5th, asking Weaver to contact him to work on his defense within the federal court system. On February 5th, the trial date was changed from February 19th to the 20th to give participants more travel time following a federal holiday. The court clerk sent the parties a letter informing them of the date change, but the notice was not sent directly to Weaver, only to Hoffmeister. On February 7th, Richens sent Weaver a letter indicating that he had the case file and needed to talk with him. This letter erroneously said that Weaver's trial date was March 20th. On February 8th, Hoffmeister again attempted to contact Weaver by letter, informing him that the trial was to begin on February 20th, and that Weaver needed to contact him immediately. Hoffmeister also made several calls to individuals who knew Weaver, asking them to have him call him. Hoffmeister then told the U.S. District Court Judge Harold Lehman that he had been unable to reach Weaver before the scheduled court date. When Weaver did not appear in court on February 20th, Ryan issued a bench warrant for failure to appear in court. On February 26th, Ken Keller, a reporter for the Kootenai Valley Times, telephoned the U.S. Probation Office and asked whether Weaver did not show in court on February 20th because the letter Richens sent him had an incorrect date. Upon finding a copy of the letter, Chief Probation Officer Terrence Hummel contacted Ryan's clerk and informed them of the incorrect date in the letter. Hummel also contacted the U.S. Marshal Service and Weaver's attorney, informing them both of the error. Judge Ryan, however, refused to withdraw the bench warrant. The USMS agreed to put off executing the warrant until after March 20th in order to see whether Weaver would show up in court on that day. If he were to show up on March 20th, the Department of Justice claimed that all indications are that the warrant would have been dropped. But instead, the U.S. Attorney's Office called a grand jury on March 14th. The USAO did not inform the grand jury of Richen's letter and the grand jury issued an indictment for failure to appear. When the Weaver case passed from the ATF to the USMS, no one informed the marshals that the ATF had attempted to solicit Weaver as an informant. As the law enforcement arm of the federal court, the marshal service was responsible to arrest and bring Weaver in, now considered a fugitive. Weaver simply stayed in his remote home, threatening to resist any attempt to take him by force. Weaver was known to have an intense distrust of the government. The erroneous Richens letter is believed to have compounded this sentiment and may have contributed to Weaver's reluctance to appear for trial. He was suspicious of what he thought were inconsistent messages from the government and his lawyer. He began to think that there was a conspiracy against him. Weaver came to believe that he would not receive a fair trial if he were to appear in court. His distrust grew even further when Hoffmeister erroneously told him that if he lost the trial, he would lose his land, essentially leaving Vicky homeless 
and that the government could take away his children. U.S. Marshal Service officers made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender peacefully, but he refused to leave his cabin. Weaver negotiated with U.S. Marshals Ron Evans, W. Warren Mays, and David Hunt through third parties from March 5th to October 12th, 1991, when Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron Howen directed that the negotiations cease. The U.S. Attorney directed that all negotiations go through Hofmeister, but Weaver refused to talk with him. Marshals began preparing a plan to capture Weaver to stand trial on the weapons charges and his failure to appear at the correct trial date. Although Marshals stopped the negotiations as ordered, they made other contact. On March 4, 1992, U.S. Marshal Ron Evans and Jack Clough drove to the Weaver property and spoke with him, posing as real estate prospects. At a March 27, 1992 meeting at the United States Marshal Service headquarters, Art Roderick codenamed the operation Northern Exposure. Surveillance teams were dispatched and cameras set up to record activity at Weaver's residence. Marshals observed that Weaver and his family responded to vehicles and other visitors by taking up armed positions around the cabin until the visitors were recognized. Beginning in February of 91, the Marshal Service developed a threat source profile on Weaver. Agents' failure to interrogate, integrate new information into that profile was criticized in a 95 report by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The subcommittee is concerned that as marshals investigating the Weaver case learned facts that contradicted information they previously had been provided, they did not adequately interrogate their updated knowledge into their overall assessment of who Randy Weaver was or what threat he might pose. If the marshals made any attempt to assess the credibility of the various people who gave them information about Weaver, they never recorded their assessments. Thus, rather than maintaining the threat source profile as a living document, the marshals added new reports to an ever-expanding file, and their overall assessment never really changed. These problems rendered it difficult for other law enforcement officials to assess the Weaver case accurately without the benefit of first-hand briefings from persons who had continuing involvement with him. Many of the people at the Marshal Service used a third-party go-betweens on the Weaver case. Bill and Judy Greider, Alan Jepson, and Richard Butler were assessed by the Marshals as more radical than the Weavers. When Deputy U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt asked Greider, why shouldn't I just go up there and talk to him? Greider replied, let me put it to you this way. If I was sitting on my property and somebody with a gun comes to do me harm, then I'll probably shoot him. The subcommittee said that the profile included a brief psychological profile completed by a person who had conducted no first-hand interviews and was so unfamiliar with the case that he referred to Weaver as Mr. Randall throughout. A later memo circulated within the Justice Department opined that the assumptions of federal and some state and local law enforcement personnel about Weaver, that he was a Green Beret, that he would shoot on sight anyone who attempted to arrest him, that he had collected certain types of arms, 
that he had, quote, booby-trapped and tunneled his property, exaggerated the threat that he posed. A review of Weaver's DD-214 in an investigation after the events of Ruby Ridge revealed that Weaver had never been a Green Beret or a member of the Special Forces. It was possible that he had received some general demolition training as a combat engineer. Following a flyover by a hired helicopter for Geraldo Riviera's Now It Can Be Told television show on April 18, 1992, the United States Marshal Service received media reports that Weaver had shot at the helicopter. That day in Idaho, U.S. Marshals were installing surveillance cameras overlooking the Weaver property. The field report for April 18, 1992, filed by Marshal Warren Mays, reported seeing a helicopter near the Weaver property, but not that any shots were heard. In an inter interview with a Coeur d'Alene newspaper, Weaver denied that anyone had fired at the helicopter. When interviewed by the FBI, the helicopter pilot Richard Weiss said that Weaver had not fired on his helicopter. The report of the RRTF to the OPR said, when the indictment of Weaver was presented to the grand jury, the prosecution had evidence that no shots had been fired at the helicopter. Media reports that Weaver had fired on the Riv Riviera helicopter became part of the justification later cited by U.S. Marshal Wayne Smith and FBI Commander Richard Rogers in drawing up the Ruby Ridge Rules of Engagement on October 21st and 22nd of 92. Also, in spite of Weiss's repeated denials that shots had been fired at his helicopter, Howen charged that, as Overt Act 32 of the Weaver's conspiracy against the federal government, Randy, Vicky, and Harris fired two shots at the helicopter. Operation Northern Exposure was suspended for three months due to the confirmation hearings of United States Marshal Service Director Henry E. Hudson. On August 21, 1992, six marshals were sent to scout the area to determine suitable places away from the cabin to apprehend and arrest Weaver. The marshals, dressed in military camouflage, were equipped with night vision goggles and M16 rifles. Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and Bill Deegan formed the reconnaissance team, while David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris formed an observation post team on the ridge north of the cabin. At one point, Roderick threw two rocks at the Weaver cabin to test the dog's reaction. The action provoked the dogs. Weaver's friend, Kevin Harris, and Weaver's 14-year-old son, Samuel, emerged and followed the dog, Stryker, to investigate. Harris and the younger Weaver said that they were hoping the dog had noticed a game animal as the cabin was out of meat. The recon team initially retreated through the woods in radio contact with the outpost team, but later took up hidden defensive positions. Later, the OP team and the Weavers claimed the dogs were alerted to the recon team in the woods after neighbors at the foot of the mountain started their pickup truck. The recon team retreated through the woods to a Y junction in the trails, 500 yards west of the cabin, out of sight of the cabin. Sammy and Harris followed Stryker on foot through the woods, while Randy, also on foot, took a separate logging trail. Vicki, Sarah, Rachel, and baby 
Elizabeth, remained at the cabin. The outpost team were anxious at first, but then relaxed. Randy encountered the marshals at the Y. Roger claimed to have yelled, Back off, U.S. Marshal! Upon sighting Weaver and Cooper, said that he had shouted, Stop, U.S. Marshal! By their account, Sammy and Stryker came out of the woods about a minute later. When the marshal's position was revealed by the dog Stryker, a yellow Labrador retriever, Roderick shot the dog dead. Seeing this, Sammy Weaver reportedly said to the marshals, You've killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and then shot in the direction of Roderick. Cooper then shot towards Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris, who both sought cover. Harris, once finding cover behind a tree stump, then returned fire with one unnamed shot, which eventually killed William Francis. Weaver, now retreating up a hill, was then shot in the back and killed by Cooper. A later ballistics report showed that 19 rounds were fired during the fight. Roderick fired one shot from an M16, then Sammy fired three from a 223 Ruger Mini 14 at Roderick. Deegan fired seven from an M16 at Harris and Weaver while moving at least 21 feet, and Cooper fired six from a 9mm Colt's machine gun at Harrison Weaver. Harris then fired two from an M1917 infield rifle, striking and killing Deegan. After the federal agents began firing, Sammy was killed by a shot to the back while retreating. Harris fired one unnamed shot and killed DUSM Deegan. The origin of the shot that killed Sammy was of critical concern in all investigations. At the time of the writing of the Ruby Ridge Report, the Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information, chaired by Senator Arlene Specter, observed that the government's position at trial was that Cooper had fired the shot. The subcommittee engaged additional experts and ultimately declined to draw a final conclusion. The Justice Department's Ruby Ridge Task Force report to the Office of Professional Responsibility states, The evidence suggests, but does not establish, that the shot that killed Sammy Weaver was fired by DUSM Cooper. It was concluded there was no indication he intended to kill or injure Weaver. Reporter Jess Walter, in his work, Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family, concludes that Cooper fired the bullet that killed Sammy Weaver. In 1997, Boundary County Sheriff Greg Sprungle conducted an independent search of the Y, and his investigator, Lucian Hag, discovered and confirmed that a bullet found in that search matched Cooper's 9mm Colt submachine gun and contained fibers that matched Sammy's shirt, conclusively proving Cooper shot 14-year-old Sammy Weaver in the back as he retreated. Harris's and the federal agents' accounts differ as to who fired first. In the 1993 trial over charges in Deegan's death, prosecutors alleged that Harris had fired the first shot. Harris asserted self-defense and was acquitted. On cross-examination by the defense, ballistics experts 
called by the prosecution testified that the physical evidence contradicted neither the prosecution's nor the defense's theories of the gunfight. Martin Fackler testified that Roderick fired the shot or shots that killed Stryker, that Deegan fired the shot that killed Sammy in the right elbow, that Harris shot and killed Deegan, and that Cooper probably shot and killed Sammy. Roderick and Cooper stated that Stryker preceded Harris and Sammy out of the woods. They said Deegan challenged Harris, who turned, shot, and fatally wounded Deegan before he could fire first. They said Roderick shot the dog once. Sammy fired twice at Roderick, and Roderick returned fire. Roderick and Cooper testified that they had heard multiple gunshots from the Weaver party. Cooper testified that he fired two three-shot bursts at Harris and saw Harris fall like a sack of potatoes with leaves flying up in front of him, presumably from the impact of a round. Cooper sought cover. He testified that he saw Sammy run away and radioed the outpost team member Dave Hunt that he had wounded or killed Harris. As described by Randy and Sarah Weaver in their book, The Federal Siege, Harris's versions of events differed as follows. Harris told them Stryker was followed out of the woods by Sammy and Harris, and that the dog ran up to Cooper. He said the dog ran to Roderick, who shot it in front of Sammy. Sammy yelled, You shot my dog, you son of a bitch, and fired a shot at Roderick. Harris said that Deegan came out of the woods and shot Sammy in the arm. Harris fired and hit Deegan in the chest. According to the Weavers, Harris said that Cooper fired at Harris, who ducked for cover and Cooper fired again, hitting Sammy in the back, who fell. Harris fired about six feet in front of Cooper, forcing him to take cover. Only then did he hear Cooper identify himself as a U.S. Marshal. Harris said that he checked Sammy and found him dead and ran to the Weaver's cabin. After the firefight at the Y, Hunt and Thomas went to a neighbor's house to call for assistance from the United States Marshal Service Crisis Center. Norris Cooper and Roderick stayed with Deegan's body at the Y. Randy and Vicky went and retrieved Sammy's body. Randy, Vicky, and Harris placed the body in a guest cabin near the main cabin. From 11.15 a.m. onward, Hunt reported to the crisis center in Washington, D.C. that no further gunfire was heard. In the aftermath of the gunfight on August 21st, at 11.20 a.m., DUSM Hunt requested immediate support from Idaho law enforcement, and he also alerted the FBI by notifying it that a marshal had been killed. Following Hunt's phone call, the marshal's service crisis center was activated under the direction of duke smith associate director for operations the marshal service special operations group was alerted to deploy in response to the united states marshal service call the boundary county sheriff's office mobilized also in response to the marshal service request idaho governor cecil andrews declared a state of emergency in boundary county allowing use of the Idaho National Guard Armory at Bonners Ferry, and after an initial delay to use National Guard armored personnel, personnel carriers. Soon thereafter, the Idaho State Police arrived at the scene. 
FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. responded by sending the hostage rescue team from Quantico to Idaho. Special agent in charge Eugene Glenn of the Salt Lake City FBI office was appointed site commander with responsibility for all active individuals from the FBI, ATF, and the Marshal Service. A standoff ensued for 11 days as several hundred federal agents surrounded the house and negotiations for a surrender were attempted. By Saturday, August 22nd, special rules of engagement were drafted and approved by FBI headquarters and the Marshal Service for use on Ruby Ridge. According to the later report to the Department of Justice, the Ruby Ridge rules of engagement were as follows. 1. If any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement had been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. 2. If any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children. 3. If compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. 4. Any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. From the sworn statement of the FBI SAC Eugene Glenn. As noted in a footnote to the report in this crucial section, the rules of engagement were modified from adult to adult male. To exclude Vicki Weaver around 2.30 or 3 p.m. after a consultation with Eugene because Vicki Weaver was not seen at the site of Deegan slain. The rules of engagement were communicated to agents on site, including communication to HRT sniper observers prior to deployment. Communications that included the change of adult to adult male to exclude Vicki Weaver. Some deployed FBI agents, in particular the sniper, would later describe the adopted rules of engagement as a green light to shoot on site. On Wednesday, August 26, four days after Vicky was killed, the rules of engagement that had been in effect since the arrival of the HRT were revoked. Per Glenn's direction, the FBI's standard deadly force policy replaced the rules of engagement to guide the law enforcement personnel that were to be deployed to the cabin perimeter. The FBI rules of deadly force in effect in 1992 stated that agents are not to use deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or the defense of another when they have reason to believe that they or another are in danger of death or grievous bodily harm. Whenever feasible, verbal warning should be given before deadly force is applied. This was in stark contrast to the permissive rules of engagement adopted for the Ruby Ridge standoff. On August 22nd, the second day of the siege, between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m., the FBI HRT sniper teams were briefed and deployed to the cabin on foot. According to the report, the Department of Justice there were various views and interpretations taken of these rules of engagement 
by members of the FBI SWAT teams in action at the Ruby Ridge site. Denver SWAT team leader Gregory Sexton described them as severe and inappropriate. Two members of the Denver SWAT team said that they were strong and a departure from the standard deadly force policy. Inappropriate and of a sort one had never been given before. The latter of these two members said that, quote, other SWAT team members were taken aback by the rules and that most of them clung to the FBI's standard deadly force policy. Another team member responded to the briefing on the rules of engagement with, you've got to be kidding. But most of the FBI HRT snipers accepted the rules of engagement as modifying the deadly force policy. According to later interviews, sniper Dale Monroe saw the rules of engagement as a green light to shoot armed adult males on site. And HRT sniper Edward Winger believed that if he observed armed adults, he could use deadly force, but he was to follow standard deadly force policy for all other individuals. Fred Lancelli, the FBI hostage negotiator at Ruby Ridge, was, quote, surprised and shocked at the rules of engagement, that most severe rules he had heard in more than 300 hostage situations. He later characterized them as being inconsistent with standard policy. The 1996 Senate report criticized the rules of engagement as virtual shoot-on-site orders. Before the negotiators arrived at the cabin, FBI sniper Lon Hirochi, from a position over 200 yards north and above the Weaver cabin, shot and wounded Randy Weaver in the back with a bullet exiting his right armpit while he was lifting the latch on the shed to visit the body of his dead son. The sniper testified at the trial that he had put his crosshairs on Weaver's spine, but Weaver moved at the last second. As Weaver, his 16-year-old daughter Sarah and Harris ran back toward the cabin, Hirochi fired a second bullet, wounding Harris in the chest. This bullet killed Vicki Weaver, who was standing behind the door of the cabin when Harris entered. Vicki was holding the Weaver's 10-month-old baby, Elizabeth. The standoff was ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators, including Bo Gritz, to whom Weaver agreed to speak. Through Gritz's mediation, Harris, who had earlier urged Weaver to end his suffering, surrendered on August 30th. He was removed via stretcher, and then he was flown by an Air Force medical evacuation helicopter to Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane. Weaver allowed the removal of his wife's body, which Gritz oversaw. The FBI HRT commander gave Gritz a deadline to get the remaining Weavers to surrender, and if they did not surrender on the day of the deadline, he would resolve the standoff by launching a tactical assault. Weaver and his daughter surrendered the next day. Both Harris and Weaver were arrested. Harris was in serious condition at Sacred Heart, but U.S. Marshals did not allow his parents to see him or talk by telephone until Monday evening after a federal court order was issued. Weaver's daughters were released to the custody of relatives. Federal officials considered charging Sarah, who was 16, 
as an adult. Weaver was transferred by military helicopter to the airport at Sandpoint, and from there he was flown by U.S. Marshal Service jet to Boise. There, he was given a brief medical examination at St. Luke's Medical Center. He was held at the Atta County Jail and arraigned in federal court the following day, Tuesday, September 1st. Weaver and Harris were charged with a variety of offenses. Their trial in U.S. District Court in Boise began in April of 93, and it was presided over by Judge Edward Lodge. In mid-June, Weaver's defense attorney, Jerry Spence, rested his case without calling any witnesses for the defense. Instead, he sought to convince the jury through cross-examination, which was aimed at discrediting the government's evidence and witnesses. In July, Weaver was ultimately acquitted of all of the charges except a charge which he incurred after he missed his original court date and the charge of violating his bail conditions, for which he was sentenced to 18 months in jail and fined $10,000 in October. Credited with time served and good behavior, Weaver served less than 16 months and he was released from the Canyon County Jail in Caldwell in mid-December. Harris was defended by attorney David Nevin, and he was acquitted of all the charges. Exactly five years after the incident, August 21st, 97, he was indicted for the first-degree murder of DUSM Bill Deegan by the Boundary County prosecutor Denise Woodbury. But the charge was dismissed in early October on grounds of double jeopardy because he had been acquitted of the same charge in the federal crime trial in 93. Defense counsels for Weaver and Harris alleged throughout their 93 trial that agents of the ATF, Marshal Service, and FBI were themselves guilty of serious wrongdoing. The Department of Justice created the Ruby Ridge Task Force to investigate events. It delivered a 542-page report on June 10, 94 to the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility. This report, originally available in a highly redacted form, later became available in a much more complete form. Questions persisted about Ruby Ridge and the subsequent Waco siege, which involved the same agencies and many of the same officials. The Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information held 14 days of hearings on these incidents and allegations of misconduct ending on October 1995. The hearings were televised on C-SPAN. The internal 94 Ruby Ridge Task Force report and the public 95 Senate Subcommittee report on Ruby Ridge both criticized the rules of engagement by claiming that they were unconstitutional. A 1995 investigation was conducted on the policies regarding use of force by federal law enforcement agencies. Its report said, In October 95, Treasury and Justice adopted use of deadly force policies to standardize the various policies of their component agencies had adopted over the years. The major change was that agencies required a law enforcement agent to have a reasonable belief of an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury in order to use deadly force. 
This brought all federal LEA deadly force policies in line with the U.S. Supreme Court rulings. In 1997, Michael Cahoe, the chief of the FBI's violent crime section, pled guilty to obstruction of justice for destroying a report which was critical of the agency's role at Ruby Ridge. He was sentenced to 18 months and a $4,000 fine. Randy Weaver and his daughter Sarah wrote The Federal Siege at Ruby Ridge in 1998 about the incident, which was published on paperback. The Weaver family, including Randy, later moved to Kalispell, Montana. Sarah and the other two Weaver daughters are employed there. In 2012, after she became a born-again Christian, Sarah Weaver said that she forgives the federal agents who killed her mother and brother. Randy Weaver died on May 11, 2022, at the age of 74. That was definitely a wild story. I, I learned a lot of things about the Ruby Ridge Siege that I never knew before. And it, it just sounds like all of the federal agents involved messed up and broke a lot of laws. Thankfully, the rest of the family was able to move on and live a life. But that is going to do it for today's episode. I do hope that everyone enjoyed this story. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers. My subscriber count has all but stopped. I, I get one or two maybe a week. But I would love to eventually get to 500 because there will be a YouTube exclusive bonus episode once I hit 500 subscribers. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. I will be releasing the next bonus episode next week, so make sure to look out for that. But once again, thank you all for listening. And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>